Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater. Decked drawer systems. I've always loved Decked, as is, but it's even better now because they just redesigned their drawer system and storage cases from the ground up. They got the Deco case line. These cases are as tough, if not tougher, than Pelican case or Go boxes. Totally waterproof and dustproof. You can literally run over them in your truck and they will be fine. High quality latches and handles make them really easy to use. They look great. They are made in the USA. To check it out, go to decked.com slash meat Get yourself free shipping. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. All right, everybody, joined today by uh, wild hog apologist Jesse Griffiths. Perfect. I love it. That title stuck. Dude, uh, we didn't have any wild hog at your restaurant the other night, but when I took my, my wife and daughter to your restaurant in Austin, Texas, died Dewey. Mm-hmm. Holy shit, was it good, man. Oh, that's good to hear. My wife said it was the best meal. I'm not kidding, unprompted. She said it was the best meal she had had in years in years I which i shouldn't that. really point that out because i cook dinner every night <laughs> she i'm sure she <laughs> meant restaurant meal i know that's what she meant absolutely yeah i didn't think about it now but it was like a dig she was making a dig at me no it wasn't building you up dude it was knocking me down and i didn't even realize it no i think there's it's there's it's categories you know you, you've got your at-home meals and you've got your dining out meals and we we, we must have excelled in that i'll take yeah, that you sell in the dining out well my brother danny um he'll He'll often say that when he eats at someone's house or whatever, he likes it. He says, because it just doesn't taste like something I made. Right. Well, it's like the whole sandwich rule. You know, like if somebody else makes you a sandwich, it's better than if you made yourself a sandwich. Yeah. 100%. Oh, so good. We had your Neil guy. We had the tartar. Right. What is that exactly? I mean, I know what it is, but like, how, what, what, like tell people what the preparation is. Oh, it changes a lot. And t- uh, like, like, act like you're going to do it with a deer or something like that. A deer? Uh, or whatever. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, it's all pretty much, if you can eat it raw, it's pretty interchangeable. And I, I prefer the tenderloin or a muscle off the leg. Um, if it's a, if it's a tartare, then we'll, we'll finely dice it and then we'll give it a nice hand chop with a real heavy, sharp knife. And then, you, so each piece of meat is how big? Well, they start off uh, like smaller, you know, probably like a one centimeter dice. Okay. And then it gets hand chopped uh, till you get that perfect, that like not ground, but uh, consistency where it's, it's pretty so you, fine. So you make a little cube, mm-hmm. you slice a little cube. Correct. And then you wop, 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 wop. Yeah. Well, well, that's the noise it makes. Well, the that's, chef's knife. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it Exactly like. the sound it makes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, just go over it until it's nice and fine, and then uh, sky's the limit. There, you know, you get creative and add something. You know, you want to put something maybe acidic in there, uh, something textural, whether that's arugula or a, or an onion or a caper or something like that. Um, something bright like lemon, salt, obviously. It needs it needs a lot of salt. I always feel like it's one of those things like avocados and potatoes that's relying on having uh, the right amount of salt on it. Yep. And then what? Um, I mean, you can go traditional, put the egg yolk in there. I want there, you to tell me. I mean, I, I know you weren't there, but I want you to tell me what I ate the other night. In all honesty, I don't know what the current set is because she might have changed it. So that Janie's the chef at the restaurant. Yeah. And and she, uh, I if I recall correctly right now, it was a, there's a piece of grilled bread. Yep. Okay. Arugula. Yep. And a, Okay. And then a fermented sofrito vinaigrette. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. We're just gonna we're just gonna nod and say yes at this yep. point because this is borderline embarrassing that I don't know what's going on. Well, you, like, I, I told you, you weren't there, <laughs> right? Uh, I think uh, yeah. So what we've got there is those those same components. You know, you've got uh, texture, especially the grilled bread being slightly warm. You know, a little bit of smoke, so you got a nice texture there. Arugula texture, and then the fermented sofrito, which sounds kind of you know. Uh, slightly fancy it's basically just our way of preserving summertime uh, vegetables in sofrito form which would be onion garlic tomato pepper um for using as a cooking base i mean it's a very traditional uh, way to like start a lot of dishes and since we're relying on having stuff uh out of season because we don't you know source anything that's not available what we'll do is we'll make a a a liquid out of that will puree that to a paste and then add salt and then ferment that and so we have it year round and it's and you're it's doing it all in your restaurant correct yes you know what you didn't take my advice on <sighs> here we go i'll tell you <laughs> i knew you were gonna tell me <laughs> when i ate in your okay you're when i ate in your restaurant i think last time i was in there i got to noticing that in the fine print at the bottom of the menu right like where someone would normally write shit like parties of six or more will have an automatic 15% gratuity or whatever sure, bullshit's sure. in the bottom of a sure. menu and super that no one ever in a million years would read. Right. You have down there, the, the, I love the, the wording is wonderful. You, it says almost everything is from around here. Correct. We had to change that that caveat almost because it used to be everything, and then there, there's a couple ingredients kind of snuck in. Like what? What snuck in? Uh, we get we get organic potatoes from Colorado. For it, it's almost like a, it's just really funny because this always comes up. It's like the restaurant's probably ninety nine percent locally sourced, but for some reason that one percent that I'm a little bashful about always rises to the oh, top. Oh, because because because. 
Yeah, because well, it says like almost everything. It's not, it here. says almost. <laughs> but I would have that in big ass letters at the top of the menu. Right. Well, I think. I mean, well, first off, I think subtlety goes a long way, and the and the server's job is to explain that. Okay. You know, when she you did. if you ask about you know a lemon, and I pressed, I pressed or, her on it. Sure. And when pressing her on it, she was saying like, "Well, there might be a situation where we'd have something." I can't remember what it was. Something would be from New Mexico. Well, we from New Mexico that we get uh, uh, pistachios, and uh-huh. uh, we do occasionally source one of our sparkling wines from there. That's what you told me. Yes, I forgot about that. And that's probably to my uh, she recollection. Said she said the reason you guys don't have a cocktail program is because it's too difficult to get it all from Texas. Right. Yes. Because like the citrus and shit, you'd have continuous. Uh, it would be. It wouldn't be impossible, but it would be, it would be onerous. You know, it, it would, yeah, it would, it would be tough. It'd be easier now that there's more spirits coming out of Texas too, which mm-hmm. has changed since we opened eight years ago. That's been drastic. Uh, but, um, you know, specifically speaking of citrus, you know, and we're down here in South Texas and I got the text, you know, don't come back without 70 pounds of lemons. <laughs> <laughs> because that's this is where they are like if if we want lemons i have to like put them in my truck and bring them to austin and uh, i just hope that everybody appreciates those lemons because <laughs> they're gonna go to, go on a ride you know but uh you know it's you know like almost everything is is the i, I felt like the best way to put that yeah that's so good man i'm glad you liked it i mean to be clear too we did have feral hog on the menu yeah, no, I didn't get it. Right. I got that big-ass pork chop. I love our pork chop. Yeah. So the ranch the, that we do our classes at is actually a domestic pig farm also. So, mm-hmm. I mean, he's got um, you know thousands of acres, and part of it is an all-outdoor operation where he's raising these just beautiful, gorgeous domestic pigs. And uh, I think that's, that's step one is just having the best possible pork, and it is just a gorgeous product. Goes into a brine, olive oil, honey. Um, after it comes out of brine, and then we grill it over post oak, and then we put salt from uh, Padre Island, so far south Texas, like the hyper saline bay down there. They they make salt. That's where you get your harvest salt. salt. That's where we get some of our salt. You know, for, for like finishing steaks and pork chops and so forth. Uh, and then it just gets a sprinkle of that on top, and that's it. Oh, it's good, man. Yeah, it's a good one. I like it a lot. How much wood were you saying you guys go through there? Because you cook over wood. Yeah, about a quart of post oak every probably five days or so. Yeah, that blows my mind. Yeah, we burn a lot. Yeah, in the smoker and then the two grills. You know, those things are going. You know, burning hot for many hours a day. Because I remember, you know, when I used to sell wood, it might be typical for a family to buy four or five cords to heat their house for the winter. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, we're yeah. You, some, I mean, if you do the math, you know that you know a log is you know maybe a dollar, maybe more, and so you just you're literally burning money. But <laughs> it it, uh, it it tastes good, you know, and it's it's part of it, you know, just that that heart, the heart of the hearth there, uh, you know, and and so much of the the things that come out of that kitchen are cooked over that wood. And so you know, it's, it's uh, worth it. You were talking about. The, the different like for cooking woods talk about your favorite wood well for because you, you use post oak that's true yes 
Well, I mean, in Texas too, it's very regional um, as far as what the the predominant fuel wood or not fuel wood, but um, cooking wood uh, would be. And so, in Central Texas, we have oaks. Um, in South Texas, where we're at right now, it's mesquite. You know, mesquite is king down here. But I mean, what's notable too is that that changes a lot of cooking. Uh, techniques so like uh, like barbecue in central texas is this offset uh, like slow heat where when you move south into mesquite country it starts to become a it's a hotter wood and so things are grilled hotter there's not as much smoking going on down here and that's because of the wood you know so that the 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 slower burn on oak in central texas makes barbecue but the south texas mesquite fire which is hotter kind of that's that makes fajitas you know yep. what i mean and so yep. i find that to be fascinating but you know we're we're right on the border between the post oaks and the mesquites and you know we have plenty of mesquites in central texas as well but i would give the edge in my preference uh for grilling to mesquite i love it I, it just it burns very hot it has a very distinct flavor to it um, but mostly what I enjoy is that that constant heat. Once that thing burns down to coals, like a nice cured mesquite log burns to like red hot coals, you, you've got it for a long time. And it puts out a ton of heat for quick cooking and searing. For smoking, I don't love it as much. I prefer post oak or pecan. Uh, are you familiar with the measurement? Like I used to sell wood in this measurement. A rick? No, never heard of that. Have you ever heard of a face cord? Nope. So a, a cord of wood is four by four by eight. So it's what, 128? I used to know this yeah. real well. 128 cubic feet. Um, 16 inch. So it's, it's, and firewood is traditionally cut at 16 inch lengths. So three logs stacked end to end is 48 inches. The stack goes 48 inches high, and it's eight feet long, and that's a cord of wood. But we used to sell a rick, and that was a face cord, meaning one log wide, so 16 inches wide, four feet high, eight feet long. A third of a cord. Yeah, a third of a cord, a rick. A third of a cord is a rick. But you never heard that measurement? No. No. Now, if you need as much wood as you need, why do you not just have a staff wood chopper? <laughs> a woodsman, a woods person. Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's a great question, but um, that would delve into the kind of the boring topic of uh, modern staffing issues. Uh, I'm telling you, it's, it's hard enough to find a, lo a line cook than a... Not uh, a wood tick? Yeah. The, as we used to call chop, chop wood, go. wood tick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, man, I think you need to have an ad in the paper that says wanted, staff wood chopper. Oh, yeah. Be like, dude, here's your job. Here's like a truck. We're going to put some beefer springs on it. We're going to build some sidewalls. It's going to be able to carry 5,000 pounds. We're going to put a cord of wood in there. And your job is I want that son of a truck here full three times a week. I don't care how you do it. I'm going to get the weirdest messages now from people <laughs> be like, I heard you're looking for a woodsman. Uh, I, I would like to send in my resume. Be like, oh, no. Well, listen, if you look, can, can we say it? Is this fair to say? If these, if someone's listening and they live in Austin and they have like a great wood supply and they want to sell some wood, is right. it fair to say they should be getting a hold of you? 
possibly. I mean, we try to we try to foster a, rela- a, a consistent relationship with with. Uh, Do you want dudes just dropping <laughs> off stray loads of wood now? No, then? no, because yeah, we need it when we need it, and uh, what the 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 goal is to have somebody that's out there bringing you quality wood consistently, like a staffer, right? Right. I mean, it's kind of like the. Uh, the grass fed grass fed beef uh, producers like a lot of times you'll you'll will be contacted by someone who who raises grass fed beef and they'll say hey we we can we would love to supply the restaurant and it's like oh okay and it's like well we'll have one cow available every 5 weeks and it's like well that doesn't that doesn't help us like we can't really do much with that and then you know like the thought of like aggregating multiple vendors uh together to try to make that happen is is it's just not going to happen it would be I might have told my wife a lie. And I'm just going to tell everybody the lie now. I was, when we were sitting there, I was telling my wife, I said, man, sometimes people just show up with, with people will show up with produce and shit. And these guys, sure. and these guys can just buy it and serve it. Yes. That's no, not, that, that, does that is happen. true. Okay. That's different. But I mean, not like, loads of yeah. wood. Or my favorite was uh, this guy uh, uh, knocks on the back door and with he mushrooms. asks for me. He's got dreadlocks and he's he wants to talk to me and he's got something in his car to show me. Sure. And I was like, I could not I'd get out to the parking lot it, fast like, I'll enough. Take it. Yeah, I'm like <laughs> I got to see what's in the car. And it turns out it was a it was like a a Honda and the whole uh, the whole back area, like the little cargo area in the back, just loaded with chanterelles. And I was like, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> and tell all your friends that I'll take it too. So, yeah, sometimes it does work out. It's the guy that's like, hey, can I drop some some hogs off? And you're like, no, nah, I, I can't do that. That's uh, that's not how we do it here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, remember how I got I to talk about a couple things real quick. Uh, and it's not like a horrible – It's a, it, it won't be – It'll seem like a rough segue to people who weren't privy to our conversation before we started recording, because we were talking about what making a lot of noise last night. Foxes? No. Owl? No. Coyotes? Yep. Oh. Or coyotes? Coyotes. Well, no that 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 gets into the problem. Not a problem. Guy wrote in. He's got this question. He says he has a potential discussion point that I'd love to hear the opinion regarding the pronunciation of the word coyote. Oh. How do you say it, Jesse? Uh, I'll say coyote, mm-hmm. but I mean, down here, you'd be just as apt or likely to hear coyote. Mm. Oh. Mm. This guy says, I grew up in rural area Kansas where the word coyote was pronounced in the two syllables form, coyote. Okay. <laughs> I would only hear the three-syllable pronunciation of coyote from television or media. You know what? He already has his answer. He already has his answer. He just doesn't realize it yet. I always made the inference that the three-syllable pronunciation was used in urban areas by people who did not hunt, trap, or otherwise interact with the animal in any way. To be honest, I would internally discredit anyone who used the three-syllable pronunciation as a city slicker. That only knew coyotes from Saturday morning cartoons. That was me. However, recently I have to question my previous dogma. As an avid listener to the Meat Eater podcast, I've heard on several occasions both the crew and guests using both the two and three syllable pronunciation. Not me. That was me. I was editorializing when I said not me. 
these are people that are much closer to the land than I spend more time outdoors and of whom I respect their opinions. He wants to know about how the proper pronunciation. Uh, can I address this? Yeah, but I'm going to do it too. If you want to start, that's fine. I'm going to start. Okay. Um, that's a Spanish word. Like I said earlier, it's coyote. And I think that it, just like in Texas, you're going to have these uh, mispronunciations of Spanish words, but you're going to kind of see a segue between the Spanish word and then where we're going to say coyote, which is where we're pronouncing that E. But then if you looked at it from, from an English language standpoint, that E would be silent and make the O a hard O sound. So it'd be a coyote. Uh-huh. Yep. So I think that, you know, the closer you get to the origin of the word Spanish down here, and I mean, you know, we, we go to the rodeo, you know, we, we eat a burrito, uh, you know, but all these words are slight Americanizations or, you know, English pronunciations of Spanish words. And I think coyote adding the E on there and then further north you get, you're probably going to get more into a, linguistic version that's reflective of of english yeah coyote Hmm. Hmm. i have never heard in my life someone who has killed a coyote called a coyote what about where you've spent a lot of time meeting those folks who've all over damn place okay now, we put this question to Dan Flores, who is the author of what he would call Coyote America. I would call Coyote America. <laughs> um, and I threw it to him. And he, he's basically either or. He's like, he says, probably the first English-speaking people that encountered that word would have been mountain men trapping around in new mexico and taos i think i'm getting this right about how, what his history was they were hearing it from spanish speakers they were english speakers he said you know you could see how they would have run off of that in various directions um from coyote that it would just have, travel its own little path but i think the person's right that you do like in media it's always coyote hmm. in in like vernacular of uh people of the land seems to me it's always uh coyote like who chases the roadrunner saturday wiley morning. coyote no cartoons no <laughs> wiley no. coyote see yeah. no it's wiley yes. coyote it's not wild coyote Here, here's it can i hit you with the chetiquette question that's etiquette okay why did you call it Chetiquette? Because our, our guy Chester. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. Um, we're, we're interested in pursuing a project where Ch- Chester on Chetiquette. Chester on Etiquette. Just for sure to be Chetiquette. Okay, here's a guy, a self-declared late-onset hunter. Recently moved from the Seattle area to Richmond-Williamsburg area of Virginia. That's a big change. What's that? That's a big change. Big change. I run a small farm that's tucked about one quarter mile back off a rural road. This is a great question. The property on either side of the driveway is owned by a hunting club. So let's get this. He's got a quarter mile. Imagine he's got a quarter mile driveway that ends at his farm. Mm -hmm. 
But as he's going down his own driveway, a hunt club owns either side. Mm -hmm. Long story short, he says, if there are turkeys on said driveway, do you feel like they would be fair game for me to shoot as long as I'm respecting all other rules, including proximity to actual road and buildings, etc.? I do hunt the actual 43-acre farm property as I like the act and process of hunting and thoroughly miss going out in the Cascades for days chasing elk, but with still a lot to learn, wouldn't mind an easy harvest from time to time. There's only one way you're going to get the right answer to this. I'll tell you, in my mind, like I'm not standing there and I don't really, I can't see the lay of the land and all that. In my mind, it would just be a matter of like, is it illegal or not? Right. I it sounds legal to me. And then there's what you call trespass with projectile too. So meaning that the uh, rifle bullet or uh, more likely shotgun, like not a single pellet could trespass over the property. Yeah, but different, uh. like different states have such different attitudes toward that stuff. And you know, think about it, man. Let's say you're hunting squirrels. Let's say you got 20 acres and you're hunting squirrels and you take a shot at a squirrel up in a tree. You've just trespassed. And you missed them. I mean, there's like, of course your projectile just trespassed. Sure. Like no one, you know. Well, that, I mean, here, that's what the issue I think would be. Yeah. But on your road, you're turkey. Well, what I'm saying, I mean, I would, I feel like it's probably okay, but there's only one way you're ever going to really feel comfortable doing it. If you're like a, if you want to be like a totally law abiding dude, call your game warden. Just be like, I got a question. But then I would advise this. This is not a hack on game wardens. Um, if, if you find someone who in, indulge you and they tell you no, press them on why they're telling you no. Are they saying it doesn't seem like a good idea or is it actually, because that's, that's your decision to make. Are they telling you it doesn't seem like a good idea or are they telling you it is illegal? Mm. I've had, I, I one time asked a game warden a question like this, and they turned back to me like, why do you feel that you would need to ask about it? Like pressing me to see if I somehow felt funny about the situation. It's sure. But I'd be like, that's not what I'm here to talk about. What I'm here to talk about is am I breaking a law? I'm trying to understand I'm not talking about what it feels like. I'm saying, is it breaking a law to hunt a turkey on this road? Yeah. Not like, is this really the kind of hunt you want? Yeah, no, no, no. I th yeah. contact the game warden. It's not a cop-out, but... Let me hit you with another turkey thing. I don't know. I haven't contacted. I don't know anybody that has contacted Michigan to find out why in the world they're doing this? Michigan allowed this past fall, speaking of turkeys, Michigan allowed the unlimited take of fall turkeys this past fall. You could shoot a turkey, go get another tag, shoot another, and so on until there were no tags left. Meanwhile, they only allow one time in the spring. Wow. 
And that's but well, Barney knows guys is... who killed multiple gobblers this fall legally. Not to mention how many hens. Oh, hens as well. Yeah, I think it's like, like I haven't heard the logic on it. That shit is ridiculous. Is that statewide? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's in his in his in his zone in the south. Huh. I haven't heard the reasoning, but let me tell you, like, like there are so many places that that you got good turkey numbers and they take that shit for granted, and then you don't. Right. There right. is no if. Go hunt all the other shit you can hunt in the fall. Right. I would be hard pressed to think of a of an instance where you just have too many turkeys. No. Someone might think they do. Right. But it ain't hunters. Right. I don't understand. Like, you get a tom turkey in the spring, and turkeys are for spring hunting. <laughs> right. It's like if 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 God didn't want you to hunt turkeys in the spring, he wouldn't have made spring. <laughs> and to have it be that you're just waylaying, like you can get one in the spring season, but in the fall you can just pile up hens. Yeah, it's like you're 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 taking you're you're taking your situation for granted. I wonder how many hunters like took advantage of that. Like folks who typically pursue in the spring were like, "Well, I'll just bag them all," or it, you know, didn't or kind of know, respected like the. How much is a tag? That I don't, I mean, very cheap for residents, probably eight or 10 bucks, you know, I would like, yeah, I mean, I, I, having some level of fall hunting, like that you could get a turkey in the fall. I'd be, uh, okay. Like I, I, I'd, I'd like, I really think I would really think that states would, would not regard having good turkey numbers as just a given. Right. After the all the reintroductions that were, you know, starting in a lot of places, but in that area in the upper Midwest, all those turkey reintroductions that really took off in the nineties, like that's not gonna last. Right. Having it's not gonna last. And if you just take if you just shooting shitloads of hens all fall, I don't think it's just not smart, man. There's not that much to hunt in the spring, so protect the spring hunt. Or just increase the tag number. Like, let everybody shoot four in the spring. Well, two. Yeah. Two is a great number of turkeys. It's great when you can get more, but like two is a great number for turkeys. I think if a state could sit there and say, man, we like our residents can across the board get a couple turkeys apiece in the spring, I would view that as a wonderful turkey policy and protect the spring hunts. Go hunt something different in the fall. Save your save your turkeys for spring. I They're, wonder when they'll have population data, like just, next year. You know, uh, yeah, zero even, turkeys or I, not. I, you know, I, I'm sure someone will write in, and I, I I look forward to hearing. I look forward to hearing. Or did you notice one of the, a person that wrote in? We're not going to cover his letter right now, but his name is Anders Chippendale. Oh, yeah. I wonder if he's the original. <laughs> um uh what the hell was I talking about? Writing in you got distracted. Turkeys. I got distracted when I saw that. Oh. I'm sure someone will write in and explain why they think it's a good idea to kill to let people just waylay tons of hens in the fall. Yeah. And that begs the question. 
Uh, should we start waylaying tons of hens in the spring? Yeah, what's well, the difference? No, they're, they're laying eggs. That's who lays the eggs? <laughs> yeah, in general. It's like the hen doesn't care. You kill the hen whenever you want. You're still preventing. It's like you're, you're removing your reproductive females. Like killing it in the fall isn't, I mean, it's like it's a little more roundabout because you could be like, well, I don't know if she would have been alive in the spring. But like I'm normally all for if there's like a, a, a species and there's a human desire to harvest it and it's a sustainable species, I'm just kind of like let people harvest the resource if it's sustainable. But I don't think places should be doing this. Well, I guess the insinuation would be that that if, if there's an overabundance of them, they have to have some sort of negative impact. Uh, yeah, what, that, right, no, I mean, that's just what I'm asking. What could possibly be the negative impact of too many turkeys on the ground? What are they eating? It's not crop depredation. I mean, maybe slightly. Yeah, but they scratch around. I, oh, it's what I'm, corn, yeah, yeah. I'm just playing it's a devil's poop on advocate my house. Here. They poop on my house. They chase my dog. Well, I mean, here in Texas, the major uh, criticism I hear about turkeys is they'll eat all the corn at a feeder. They'll come in and hoover it all up. Um, and that's about as bad as they get, as like impactful as, as an abundance of turkeys can be here, to my recollection. I can't remember of anybody ever saying anything otherwise. And then that instance doesn't even exist in most other states. And so what could it possibly have been for them to decide that other than like, Oh, we're going to provide our hunters with something more there. I mean, I, what could the impact be to make them make that choice? Yeah. I don't know. I'm sure we'll find out if I was doing a good job, I would have found out before I brought it up, <laughs> but uh, here's my thing. I'm like, I'm 90% sure. I'm 90% sure that when I hear the rationalization for it, I'll say, uh, I'll say, I, that's not a good idea. Saving for spring. 100%. Have they ever done this before? Well, a lot of places have, you know, a lot of states have fall turkey hunts. And when states' turkey numbers look like they're going down, it's kind of the first thing you do is you, it's like when turkey numbers are great, one of the first things it seems states do is they start killing them in the fall. When turkey numbers start going down, they tend to not want to kill them in the fall. But the idea of having that an individual could just keep renewing and renewing and renewing until they consume up a certain pool of tags, you're going to create like fall turkey killing specialists. Yeah. Hmm. And the potential waste that would come from that, people that might just enjoy the hunting of them and the breasting of them out and, and hens. I mean, cause then you also, your yield is 40, 50, 60% of what it would be on a Tom. And so just like even, even worse, but then the impact of your killing a dozen at a time, every time you take out a hen and that's just for the next season, uh, you know, potential turkeys. I, it's, it's stunning. That's stunning to me. Another thing that happens like, uh, in some States in Montana, in the fall, you can kill them with a rifle. Yeah, you can kill them here with a rifle. You can hear them kill them with a rifle in the spring here. Yep, one Wyoming can kill them with a rifle in the spring. I know a guy that they hunt them scope in the they hunt spring turkeys 
they hunt spring turkeys with an AR on a bipod. Which is <laughs> isn't isn't that kind of blown to smithereens? No, oh, no, no. You can, no. I mean, you can precision just, shoot them. Okay. You can precision. I mean, the thing is, try to precision shoot it them in the head. Just feels well, like a very I've, high I've certainly shot rifle. turkeys. I'm sorry, but I've I've shot them with a rifle before, yeah. and uh, because uh, at that time I valued turkey meat more than the spring hunt but now i am mm -hmm. fully on board with the spring hunt yeah i want i want to be extra careful here and explain where i'm at on this it's like hate the game not the player <laughs> okay and i don't even hate like i don't i'm not saying i hate the game if i thought that you could just always have shitloads of turkeys I'd be like, yeah, hunt them in the spring, hunt them in the fall, whatever, right? I, to make my point clear, I think that people are making the mistake of, of thinking that they're in a static situation with turkey numbers. But then you go look at what's happening in Arkansas, what's happening in Missouri, what's happening in some other places that, where it's like those, the good old days of the 90s the good old days of the early 2000s ain't here anymore. The turkey numbers, and then everybody's sitting around lamenting the loss of turkeys, questioning the loss of turkeys. What happened to the turkeys? It's the meat, it's like mid-sized predators. It's avian influenza. It's killing shitloads in the fall. It just isn't, I think you're like, uh, I'm trying to think of how, what you'd say. It's not cutting off your nose to spite your face. You're dicking yourself over. <laughs> You're dicking yourself over. Prove me wrong. In the future, I'll be like, told you. Make life insurance part of your financial planning this year. Start shopping now with Policy Genius to find the right policy to protect your family. Getting life insurance today means you'll have peace of mind so that if something were to happen to you, your family can cover expenses while getting back on their feet. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. They work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com. Or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Meal prepping and thinking about what's for dinner all the time can be a real stressor. Well, using ButcherBox helps relieve that stress. With ButcherBox, you're always prepared with good quality meat in the freezer. It's the ultimate convenience with custom curated boxes shipped right to your door with free shipping which means fewer trips to the grocery store. It's hard to find the same value at the store because 
What store can you go to where you're going to get free protein for a whole year alongside your order? Plus, they have a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive member deals, and they make it even easier on you with recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of weeknight meal essentials. Three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, you get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater and use code meat eater to choose your free offer and get $20 off. I've been checking out the new Pard Optics FT34 thermal front clip-on, and let me tell you, it is a game changer. It is an all-in-one thermal optic. That's right, the FT34 thermal optic is the first three-in-one device from Pard. It uses a newly designed quick-detach mount to secure the optic to the front of your existing scope. No need to re-zero or fumble around the dark trying to change optics on your rifle. The FT-34 can also be used as a standalone scope with all the features the device offers, such as one-shot zero, PIP, which is picture-in-picture mode, blind pixel supplementation correction, auto-hot target tracking, Wi-Fi connectivity to your mobile device, and video recording that can be saved to a removable 128 gig micro SD card. This unit can also be used for exploring and scouting as a handheld spotter and is small enough to fit in your pocket. This thermal unit really does it all. Check out the FT34 as well as many other great optics at www.pard. That's P A R D.com. Talk about how you cook those ducks, Jesse. Talk about your ducks and how you make them. Those are so good. They came Wonderful out. Wonderful duck so recipe. Good. They came out great. Uh, Jesse's going to tell you, Jesse's going to tell you how to make the best. And don't be all wishy-washy like with the, with the tartar. I was I wishy-washy with <laughs> Like that. get in there like you're talking to a five-year-old, okay? <laughs> like you're talking to a five-year-old, no, 10-year-old. You're talking to a 10-year-old. Here's how to cook your ducks. Here's how I cooked the ducks the other day. We shot, uh, we, were, we were really knocking down some hen spoonies uh, for some reason. Not even a, a single drake in the bunch. It was, uh, I think we had six, six five, spoonbills. Five or six. I, I wasn't part of this, but. One widgeon. No, uh, yeah, well, it doesn't really matter. Uh, we plucked them uh, and we dry plucked them. Uh, I'd brought well, I think some. you better get into talk about the northern shoveler. The northern shoveler is a maligned uh, duck. Very often much maligned. so. Often maligned duck. Let me back up. And uh, we did a we did a private class years ago, and we 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 aligned it on this weekend where turkey it was fall uh, season, uh, quail, dove, and duck were all in season, and we kind of did this almost scavenger hunt for the clients, where they would just go out and you know on a certain day we'd be like, today is duck day. You guys go out and shoot some ducks, and then we would do a little class, and then we would cook them. We did a blind tasting between a model duck, which is, I would say, pretty close to a, a mallard as mm-hmm. far as flavor. Uh, they're smaller, probably less fat. And then also uh, a spoonie, a shoveler. And we, we blind tasted them. We brined them and then grilled them, medium rare, sliced them, put them on a plate, labeled them A and B, 
and uh, between probably about the 10 people that tried them, that universally preferred the shoveler over the model duck. Hmm. And both were good. Uh, but I think that, you know, it, it's one of those things, and I could probably talk for hours about all the things that are uh, maligned or where you've been told they're not good, you know, wild pigs being one of them. Everything on the, every wild game item with a couple exceptions. Right. Someone's going to tell you how it's no good. Right. And uh, a shoveler. And, but that said, I've had them before where they were pretty strong. Uh, so we, we dry plucked them. Um, instead of we, I, 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 I want to say a couple more things about go, spoonies. Go um, spoonbills and northern shovelers. It's we're, we're top. It's two words for the same thing. But they have like a bit. I mean, their bill look is shaped like a spoon. Right. It goes out narrow and has this wide sort of thing on it. And if you ever watch them feeding, they sit on the surface and they basically sieve out. They sieve stuff off the surface of the ponds, and they're, they they catch a lot of larvae, insect larvae, other invertebrates, and a, a general thing. This is like speaking very generally. A general thing is that things that eat a lot of ant, ducks and waterfowl that eat a lot of animal matter. They don't taste as good as the ones that eat a lot of plant matter. Right. With the pinnacle of like universal acceptability being ducks that are feeding on grain right would be if you ask people like what's a great duck it'd be like a mallard feeding on barley a goose feeding on or a mallard feeding on corn right like lots of fat mild flavor um a mallard in an estuary in southeast alaska feeding on invertebrates i was saying the other night tastes like the loch ness monster yeah if you could get a steak off him uh and spoonies have that 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 like animal matter ducky can have that animal matter taste which is how how would you describe it uh, mud mud muck musty um I mean, I obviously I'm going to avoid the 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 gamey because it's just a ridiculous term for dra- describing game. Term, yeah. um, well, you know what's funny is we used to describe like any uh, like of that kind of muddy flavor, maybe like a big boar. We used to describe it as spoony. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So you were using the spoon bill last time. <laughs> I mean, because sometimes they can be uh, pretty strong, and I want to I want to be really clear that I don't think that my preparation conquered that i think that these also happen to be oh. on, on the good you taste think they were good spectrum. spoonies i think they were good spoonies um but you know i will say that I, the first duck i cleaned was the widget and then cleaning it holding it in my hand opening it up and having the the organs in my hands was different than when we cleaned the spoonies they i was like oh that's a spoonie <laughs> like that i could Got smell it. them yeah like they were they smelled stronger their gut smelled stronger everything crops full of bugs and right yeah. it, and so i my anticipation of cooking them was like well this you know i'm gonna do it uh but i i don't know how well it's going to turn out but i do think that um, if we're ready to move on to that first step yep. is the the pre-seasoning step and that's either going to be a a 
made dry. No, you're ahead of yourself now because you didn't talk about. You didn't explain how you cleaned them. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we dry plucked them. I brought some wax down, but I feel like for it was six or seven birds, I wasn't going to fire up the waxing pot uh, for that, and uh, it would have taken too much time. So we just sat out and we dry plucked them, and it worked really well. I mean, Meaning you walk out into a field and pluck it. Correct. Yep. You know, we, we plucked them all the way, took, spent a lot of time, and then we saved all the hearts and livers to clean the gizzards. Uh, and they look pretty good. You know, there's some pen feathers on there, but, uh, you know, a lot of times I just ignore this. Like, I'm not super, like, like fastidious about getting in there and getting those little pen feathers off sometimes or just burn them off. Um, the wax works great, though, if you have the time, if you've ever seen. Do you wax ducks? I have, but like you said, it's got to be a pile of them. Yeah. Before it's, it's just, there's just so much like, go, there's so much that goes into it. Right. That sometimes by the time you do it and then clean up, you could have just done it. Sure. Or like not even, you could have done it by the time you get it going, do it, clean up. You're like, I would I would have had them done in a third of as much time. It's like making sausage. It's better with a, a organization and a team. Mm-hmm. So like if you're on your way back from a duck hunt, like we are at some of these, at the classes that we're doing, like I'll be back at the processing shed and the guy that took the clients out to duck hunt that morning called me 45 minutes and I turned the burner on and I'm waiting there with three pairs of bird shears when they show up and they just start going into the, into the wax. And I think yep. that's obviously, that's very efficient. And, and you're just using paraffin. Uh, a specific uh, blend. My friend Jonathan from Black Duck Revival, he turned me on to this, uh, this specific blend wax. I cannot remember the brand of it right now. I would, I would, well, I think it's Traub, T-R-A-U-B supply. I think that's the one he recommended, but I'd have to go back and look and see what he specifically recommended because that was the best duck wax. Mm-hmm. And it was a blend of paraffin and another type of wax. Got I am it, not familiar with the waxes. Uh, so we plucked them. We uh, let them cool um, in the refrigerator uncovered, got them a little dry, and then I uh, halved them by taking the breastbones out. You know, come down on either side of the breastbone, crack through it with a heavy knife, so then you've got a half duck. I know a lot of times you like to cut the breast off and the leg. I, I was going to give you, I was gonna give you a little feedback about that. Yeah. Oh, just still having the rib bones on there? Yeah. 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 A little unsightly. Unsightly. I'll take that. Uh, I, the reason I do that is I need that structure. Otherwise, they're going to fall apart during the process that I'm going to talk about next. Okay. So I need those, I need those rib bones in there to, to keep them. Now, I mean, they could be removed after cooking, but... Um, if it was just the boneless breast attached to the bone in uh, leg quarter, which is your preference, mm-hmm. uh, I do believe they would have fallen apart or the potential for falling apart could have been there. So next up would be... I, I disagree. Okay. If there's a good layer of fat and skin, it, it holds everything together. If, it's a, if the skin's real thin, then I agree with what you're saying. Well, you're just taking these... When, you, when you're cooking like that, you're typically just taking them from raw straight to the grill or the broiler or no i'm saying if you got a good heavy hide on it mm-hmm. no I you can that. slow cook it you can do like what you were talking about okay. and wind up with an intact piece okay if it's got a good heavy hide on it okay but go, that, that, that that's neither here nor there so next up would be the, the pre-seasoning and i feel like this is probably where you're massaging some of that that more 
intense flavor out of these ducks. And that's going to either be in a brine or a dry cure, which is these days known as a euphemistically known as a dry brine, which I think is pretty funny. Um, cause a brine is a liquid. <laughs> but, oh yeah. Well, you know where, where I use that term would be like, let's say you're doing fish and you just pack it in salt and sugar in a couple minutes or a couple hours you have a liquid brine oh because it's exuding well that's known as i mean yeah technically that's a cure yep no i'm with you but i think that I, that's why i think of it because in the end when you dig them out of there when all that more <laughs> when you dig them out of there it is a liquid certainly but yeah you're, you're right that's a funny term dry brine well, I, I just felt like it, it euphemistically came about a few years back and i remember the first few times i heard it i'm like dry dry brine that sounds almost exactly like dry water, pre-seasoning, <laughs> yeah, or or dry rub, or a cure. Like it's there's we already had all of that these terms for it. Yeah. But it, either way, I chose uh, the uh, I chose the dry brine technique for these <laughs> dry and, cure. Yes, um, <laughs> and uh, just you know going through the the cabinet, uh, and I, I found some of our coffee cure that we sell at the restaurant here and i use that i was like i mean why not uh so i hit him with a little bit of that which has got some coffee salt sugar a few spices in there um uh, seasoned on both sides and let them sit for about four hours which for that size duck i thought was appropriate and then they went into uh pork fat like rendered lard uh, over very low heat i melted the lard and put them in there to make essentially this is a confit the whole process is confit where you're adding salt, kind of lightly curing it, and then slowly and gently cooking it in fat. I want people to understand what he's saying. He just said slowly and gently cooking it in fat. And covered in fat. So a copious amount of fat. So I'm afraid people are going to like hear it, and they're going to be like, oh, that sounds like complicated. Fry. Yeah, it's no. not. And then you can reuse the fat as well. And so even the, from a cost perspective, it's not as, as bad as, as, as you might think. It's not yeah. like, and if you're, well, yeah. And also if people are still on the thing that like fat's bad, it's going to do something bad to them. It's not, it's not, it's not absorbing. So, I mean, traditionally a confit was a preservative. So you would, you would use more salt and you would salt it for longer. So it was, the salt was preserving it. And then you would create this indelible layer of cooled fat on top. So even the word larder is a cool place where lard would be congealed. Yeah, you make an anaerobic environment exactly. by putting on in fat. Exactly. So it's salted so your larder at the bottom. Was full of, your larder was full of meat packed in lard. Correct. And if it was cool enough, just where the, the lard would congeal and set, which probably would happen in, I'd say, the maybe the 50-degree mark, you know, it just is cool enough to where it was becomes a solid. Uh, then you're protecting that meat under there. So it's a it's a very old preservation yeah, you're technique. You're protecting it from oxygen. Yeah, and it's also a, an incredibly useful technique for cooking game because it it's a very slow, gentle heat that adds in a little bit of fat. Uh, but then once you achieve that tenderness, so and let me go back and say I came up short on lard too. I brought a quart of rendered lard with me, and for those 10 halves of ducks so i guess it was five by my math um i was barely able to get them covered so i threw a couple sticks of butter in there uh because i had to and that's and it worked of course 
I just have a question about the salt in there. Is there any kind of, in this cooking process, like uh, pulling out the mucky flavor? Um, or is it that the slow cook is having, with the salt, the coffee, the sugar, the spices, permeating the fat and the flesh of the bird? So is it kind of a going in versus pulling out if we're... If we're eliminating or reducing the mucky flavor? Right. That is an excellent question. I think that I don't, I, I will be real honest and say, I don't know mm -hmm. how the magic really works. But what I, what I do know is you know, the whole spice trade hundreds of years ago was based on covering up the flavor of rancid right. or spoiled mm -hmm. meats pre-refrigeration. And so, um, you know, you've got people traveling to China mainly to bring back these things that are going to help their food taste a little better. Right, right. Not necessarily because they were refining their palates. So the cloves and the cinnamon and the star anise and all these things. I always say, uh, in, in the context of, of feral hogs, I've always said it this way, is like the gaminess of a feral hog when you put it into a brine, and we use a we use a star anise brine, like very specifically salt, sugar, bay, and star anise in water for feral hogs, although that said, it, it works great for ducks as well. But the star anise would be like, if, if the pig, if a big boar, kind of stinky and a little bit musky and gamey, uh, was a piece of plywood, the, the star anise is a fine grit sandpaper that comes in and just rubs it down a little bit. And there's something about that flavor where it rounds it, it meets that gaminess and massages it to where it's, it's way more palatable mm -hmm. for some reason. Kind of, it, it, somewhere on, if you were like looking at a chart in the spectrum of flavors, the anise or the clove or the cinnamon inhabits the same spectral area i think as these muddy flavors and so it's really helpful in that way as, as a side note have you heard of like the chinese i don't know if it's really tech, a technical term but my friend um who's a chinese chef mentioned to me this like chinese meat washing technique which which does use actually all of uh, or most of these spices so um i had old elk in the freezer from a friend, maybe it was like three years old and I'm not really sure how well uh, processed it was to begin with, but I didn't want to waste it. And she told me that I should, uh, in a pot, ginger, cloves, star anise, um, cinnamon, uh, kind of, I guess, brown, brown the meat and then add water and bring it to a slow boil uh, and then dump everything out. You know, that the blood, if it hasn't bled well, that like foamy mm -hmm. kind of bubbly mm -hmm. yuck Impurities. comes to the top. Instead of skimming it, dump everything out and then do that process again. And you can do that process as many times as you want. And that the, the impurities are... I guess sucked out and you're and you're just dumping that out. You're not really using the flavor of that broth to start with. Um, well, then what the hell are you doing with that braise. boiled ass piece of meat? And then you braise. Oh. And you I add don't think fat. That and like a you good add, idea, you know, man. and I think but it's I'm telling you it didn't 
taste, it tasted fresh. You would not have known because that meat had a funk to it when yeah, it was I got defrosted. You. I got you. Yeah. You know, um, and she'll she'll do that with a lot of um, meat that she feels, even, you know, meat from the grocery store. Like if it just hasn't bled out enough and with wild game, um, often cases, hmm. you know, the blood is still in there. If you feel dress cut apart and then kind of package or freeze instantly. Maybe it hasn't dried out. It hasn't hung for long enough. There's the blood is still in the flesh. So I'd like to hear a a remedy for when you got, when you left fish in your freezer a little too long, Mm. like a fatty fish and it gets that kind of skanky. Oh, I just eat it because I'm like, we got to eat it now. (laughs) The fat going rancid. It happens on feral hogs as well. Like if they sit in the freezer for too long, the fat starts to it. They could be way stronger. You can make a, a sausage, and then a, like a year later, it's totally changed in the freezer. Yep. It is. It's the fat. Yeah. Here's a red alert for people that have had bad bear meat. Bear meat. You. If you want to freeze bear meat, you got to get all the fat off the bear meat. Hmm. The fat comes off the bear meat. If you want to make lard, render it now because the lard's good. Put it in your freezer. You can can it. Whatever. But don't freeze that shit with fat on it because the fat spoils. Right, right. Same with pigs. In the freezer. But I want to get back to these ducks. ducks I want people. To, I want people to really understand this. Yes. Jesse has taken his spooners. He's plucked them. Cut them in half. Improperly cut them in half. Properly cut them in half. Okay. Rib uh, bones sticking out everywhere. Rib bones just jabbing out everywhere. He put a coffee cure on them. Yeah. It could have been anything. It could have been. Salt. You know what I would a component I would really want to have in there would be a little bit of sugar into the the cure or the dry brine, uh, a, a little bit of sweetness in there, um, and then some sort of spice. But in this case, I just saw the coffee cure up there, and I'm like, coffee duck, sure. It was from your restaurant. Try it out. Yeah. Then he put it in the fridge, four hours. Four hours in the fridge. Then he took it out. Did not rinse it. Correct. Now, not with without going off on a tangent too far, but traditionally confit would be a heavier salting, like a very heavy salting. And so when it comes out of the cure and it's about to go into the fat, oftentimes you're going to want to rinse the excess. For a short-term cure, for a non-preserving cure for confit, season to quote-unquote taste. Like season it like you would if you were about to throw it on the grill. Or That's in a, a good pan. way of putting it. Yeah. So you just you're applying the amount of seasoning that you actually want. Yep. Now, if you're going to go for something where you want to come back to it in four months, I would go a little bit heavier, cure it very well, and then possibly remove some of that excess salt once it has absorbed into the meat. Uh, but in this case, we were we're going straight into the pot. So I just seasoned it to taste and then put it in the melted lard and butter. And if you're, if you're intimidated by this whole lard thing, I'm talking to listeners, not you. I was just doing this as a little research project, uh, listening intently. But while, while listening, I did a research project. Um, you just, I mean, if you, don't, if you can't find it or you're kind of intimidated by the whole thing, I mean, I, just t- I went to Amazon and typed in. Yeah, I mean, you can buy the shit on Amazon. Yeah. Pork lard. Yeah. But beef lard, pork lard. It's like it's not hard to find, right? And people often ask about you know. Did I you, see you guys did, sell it at your restaurant. 
Uh, we, we sure do. <laughs> it's probably... Uh, if you're in Austin, just go buy it from Jesse. That's right. Yeah. Uh, we sell tallow and lard. Uh, t- I would say lard and duck fat, pretty inter- interchangeable for con- making a confit with duck. Uh, we're using lard because that's what we got. So right now, 42 ounces of... Um, 42 ounces of hog lard, 25 bucks. Wow. There's another place where it's 100% USDA organic pork lard, 14 ounces for 23 bucks. I'll say we're going to beat those prices down there at Dye Due on 2406 Maynard Road in Austin, Texas. You can go down there and get a, uh, I don't remember what the volume is now, but it's going to be cheaper than that. Wagyu beef tallow. 42 ounces, so two and a half pounds, 30 bucks. But that's, you know, Wagyu beef towel. Mm-hmm. Let's go on. Okay. So then uh, in a low. Oh, here, here can, I get, can I hit you with one more deal? One more deal. Let's. Beef towel. Let me know if this beats your prices, Jesse. Is that a bucket? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 24 pounds. Uh huh. 24 pounds of beef towel, 109 bucks. I don't. I can't do that math. I'm so sorry. Well, let's think it through. No, let's think it through. <laughs> let's say it was 25 pounds for 100 bucks. Okay, I got that at about four bucks a pound. That's cheap. It's a screaming deal. Well, let's just say it's not as good as yours. It's definitely not as good as. So yours. head down to Jesse's restaurant and buy his lard. Right. Well, you can often find lard too in uh, Mexican and Central American. Uh, specialty, not even specialty, but like grocery stores. Yep. Uh, well, I haven't even got into that. The little manteca. No, no. Well, yes. So I personally, I would advise that you ab- uh, avoid shelf stable lard at all costs because it's hydrogenated. Oh, and, okay. Yeah, and it's it's as bad as shortening is for you. Uh, and get the freshly rendered stuff that's at the at the at the meat market, which will typically be. Uh, room temped, sitting on top of the counter. But I will say also that the rendering process is really important with lard. And a lot of times I find that the lard there might be a little hard cooked. And the more brown that you, when you cook it, the more you actually fry it and the more color that comes out of it, the stronger the pork flavor is. And so when we're rendering lard, we're our goal is neutrality. We really want it to be as mildly flavored as possible, and so we're not taking it to a deep golden brown. We're taking it very gently until it's, what I always tell people, it's like a straw color. It looks like a light beer. Huh. It's got tiny bubbles in it, and it looks like you poured a, a Miller Lite into a glass. It should be kind of that yep. color with the, the tiny bubbles, and they're indicating that all the moisture is cooked out. I want to point out that, a lot of these products I'm looking at are non-hydrogenated. Yeah, they'll be refrigerated. So, yeah, um, I'm going to go ahead and say just do not get shelf-stable lard. It is hydrogenated, and it is, it's quite bad for you. Okay. Uh, so, we are Can almost, I tell you one last thing? Let's do it. It's killing me. It's killing me. I didn't know that you could go on Amazon for fifty two ninety nine and buy a nine pound bucket of bacon grease, <laughs> <laughs> which would work great. Also, so let's all the just people say, throwing out their bacon grease, dude. Yeah. These people are throwing it into a bucket and then they sell it. Yeah, for yeah. fifty three bucks, bacon fat would work would work equally well. It's just a bucket that says "Bacon up, bacon grease." 
Oh. <laughs> That's great, man. All right, we're going into the oven now. Oh, uh, so yeah, let me back up. He's plucked the ducks. Oh, my. Plucked the ducks. <laughs> We've halved them. They've been seasoned They've for, for four hours. Now they're in. They. I, he went I, on Amazon. He bought fat. I bought the fat. Uh, I layered the uh, half ducks into the fat, made sure they're covered, and then put that into a pretty low oven. I put it in at 275 uh, just so that they very gently cook. So, um, you know, if you're going to slow cook something, typically it's going to be browned and then and slow cooked. So there's going to be like two distinct phases, like the, the crisping phase and then the slow cooking phase. And you can do that in either order. You can slow cook and then brown or you can brown and slow cook which is typically a braise or you can cook something until it's tender and then put it on a grill or put it under a broiler or something like that at the end after it's tender and that's what we're doing here so we cooked those ducks until they were tender but not falling apart but i wanted them to be intact intact you know and that's why i left those rib bones on there yeah i want to point out this is a tricky part for people cooking right is slow cooking can like when you're doing this it can feel like oh it doesn't really matter i can let it go for a bazillion years right there is a long window of doneness but it's not an infinite window of doneness that's so well put this is oh i get it's okay i always feel bad about going off on a tangent but no but you then i talk to you explain this 10 year old (laughs) you're explaining this 10 year olds I I uh I do a I do a kind of a challenge for my employees every month and it's it's I I send them what I call them a mission. And then this year or this month being well this is December uh at the time of the recording uh, my 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 project for them all this is all the back of the house employees at the restaurant was to uh, come up with three uh, the go like food ghosts, so past, present, and future. And so it was like a memory, something they're excited about now, and a goal for the future. Um, and I, I kicked it off by telling them my stories, and I'm not going to go into depth here, but what you just said is very appropriate because my, my current focus and what I'm really trying to do is, in slow cooking, nail the texture of something that's been slow-cooked with the attention that I would give a steak. Oh. You know what I mean? Like, I yeah. want to have it come out perfect, where it's not shredding and falling apart, but it's, quote-unquote, fork tender, where you where it's just right. I screw this up all it's the time. It's very easy because of what you just said. But the thing is, is when it goes too far, uh, especially a braise or a stew or something like that, and it's just like, well, that's okay. You know, but if it's not far enough, obviously it's tough. Yep. So, absolutely, we cook these ducks. Um, I would say about four hours and four hours at two seventy-five. Yeah, and it would be intact enough that you can grab the end of a drumstick and hoist the duck out lightly, with gently, tenderly, where you would you would. Okay, hoist might not be the word. Hoist, no, is definitely implies like pulling out with a truck or something. Yes, yeah. um, I, I think you know, well, just going in with a knife, and if it goes through with with no resistance, wiggling that that leg and seeing that it's starting to to be it's it's tender, but it's not falling apart. But knowing also that there's still a little bit of a cooking process. Um, I 
in this case, I cooled the ducks in the fat, which I think really helps them because it gives them kind of a, uh, they kind of coast out of that heat and the fat congealed all around them. And I put them in the refrigerator and let them sit overnight. Now you could pull them out immediately and go on to this next process, but my preference and what timing wise, I wasn't serving it that day. I was serving it the next day. I just threw the pot. I let it cool down a little bit and threw it in the refrigerator where the, it covered them and congealed in fat. The next day you come back and very gently, cause you don't want to fry them. You know, I very gently melted the fat and removed the ducks and let them kind of drain most of their fat off. And then let's address the fat because we've gone extensively into, uh, rendered fat prices <laughs> and, and it's not cheap right and so we don't want to discard this fat and so here's what you do with that and oh i will say i'll make note something that i've never done before i took two heads of garlic cut them in half and threw them in the fat and essentially made like garlic confit along with it and that mm. was awesome i mean you could just smell just like mm. this beautiful like really slow cooked garlic infusing into them as well. And so now my fat is infused with that garlic. So I strained the fat out, uh, not boiling hot, but you know, let it cool off a little bit to where it's still liquid. And I strained it into, um, I don't know how to put this, a container that one could easily scoop the congealed fat out of. So don't put it in a mason jar that has a, a neck on it put it in something that's either straight sided or kong vex vex i think <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. that that you can not a lab beaker but the other yes, way yes. right like the lip is wider than the base <laughs> correct and so and then i put that in the refrigerator so what you're going to have now is your your fat's going to your pure fat cuz i strained it your pure fat's going to rise to the surface and congeal and then at the bottom you are going to have a bit of this kind of seasoned gelatinous liquid that has come off of the ducks. Um, and then at some point after it's been totally cooled, you're going to want to go in and scoop the whole thing out and scrape the, that gelatinous liquid off the bottom. And that will, at that point, that fat is good for years. And then you could take that little bit of liquid that it's like a highly concentrated gelatinous stock. It's highly seasoned also. And you can use that in small amounts in a soup or something like that. You could you could add that into something. There would be probably from this project, we probably would yield about a half a cup of this gelatinous liquid at the bottom. That's going to be like kind of concentrated yep. uh, cured duck flavor. You know what? Uh, I have a little witch's hat with those filters that you can pour it through. Yes, to pull a bunch of the shit out of it. Yes, but you still get the layer. Yeah, you're going to have it no matter what. Um, and then that, that fat is going to be good to go for several more rounds if you treat it the same way every time. Um, and then so, so the, that, that initial investment will be diffused by being able to reuse it. I've been checking out the new Pard Optics FT34 thermal front clip-on, and let me tell you, it is a game changer. It is a all-in-one thermal optic. That's right, the FT34 thermal optic is the first three-in-one device from Pard. It uses a newly designed quick-detach mount. 
to secure the optic to the front of your existing scope. No need to re-zero or fumble around the dark trying to change optics on your rifle. The FT-34 can also be used as a standalone scope with all the features the device offers, such as one-shot zero, PIP, which is picture-in-picture mode, blind pixel supplementation correction, auto-hot target tracking, Wi-Fi connectivity to your mobile device, and video recording that can be saved to a removable 128 gig micro SD card. This unit can also be used for exploring and scouting as a handheld spotter and is small enough to fit in your pocket. This thermal unit really does it all. Check out the FT-34 as well as many other great optics at www.pard.com. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. On X Hunt is always striving to help make hunters more successful in the field each season. This hunting season, they will have a bunch of new features to help you on your next hunt. These features include new aerial imagery options like leaf off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, OnX is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates OnX has for this hunting season. Try OnX Hunt free for seven days or go to onxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new OnX Hunt membership. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the app I use most. I love it. I cannot picture life without it. Use code MEATEATER for 20% off on your new OnX Hunt membership. Okay, so now you got your ducks. Your duck halves have been cooked for four hours, submerged in pork lard. At 275 degrees, right. the listener has pulled his ducks out, and he's finding, he or she are finding that they're intact. You can gently lift the half of the duck. It's not falling apart. It's not like how my mother used to cook squirrels in a crock pot and cream of mushroom soup, where when she was done, there was a layer of bones in the bottom. Yeah. And, and everything else floating on top. Right. They're intact, and here we are. Here we are. Uh, I put them on a little uh, sheet tray or a baking sheet, and then I started a very gentle mesquite fire. 
is I don't want to grill them over really high heat. But what I just want to do is just, I want to I let them kind of cool off a little bit. And then I, I just want to cook them skin side down on a grill oh, and only on the skin side. I'm never going to flip them to that cut side. Ever, never. Never. And I just want to gently crisp up the skin and give them a little bit of smoke. Um, and like that nice, beautiful, like charcoal burning wood flavor. Um, so that process should take about 20 minutes. Like the fire is that gentle under them or there's that much space. However, you're going to achieve that just a few coals, you put them down and they're going to make just a little bit of a sizzling sound and you want them to kind of gently brown up from there and just get that skin crisp. And I, I, I did a little glaze just because the Brad, the guy that owns this place, he was cleaning out a cabinet and he was like, here's some pepper jelly. And I was like, perfect. Yeah. That shit was good. Yeah, that was great. So, uh, a little bit of something sweet, uh, just like brushed that on the skin after the fact. And that's it. Pepper jelly. Um, pepper jelly. And it could be anything. It could be a mix of vinegar and honey, which is uh, classically my favorite. Like literally just a 50-50 mix of any vinegar and honey. Um, I mean, it could be rice wine vinegar, balsamic, apple I cider, write that shit down, white man. wine vinegar. It doesn't really matter. Sherry vinegar. Very good. Um, if something you, if sweet. If you did that, would so. you need to heat that together? Uh, yeah, sometimes you can just change the flavor That's a good go-to duck glaze. That's a good glaze. That's a good, like, uh, I don't have a lot of available things. Or really just anything sweet and anything, like, oh, all I've got is uh, the juice out of a jar of pickled jalapenos and some blackberry jam. Hmm. Okay. I'm, I'm not advocating that specifically or saying it's my favorite but if that's what you got you're probably going to make that work i mean it's probably going to be good it's sweet and it's sour you know just find something you know i've got a lime and a coconut <laughs> <laughs> i mean you've, you've got a lime and uh some molasses i mean again i'm not advocating that specifically but that's the that's the general yeah. idea yeah and then a little bit of a glaze on them. So vinegar and honey. Vinegar and honey is mm. beautiful. I mean, and you can add, embellish that, you know, like uh, garlic uh, is very good in there. Um, and then you can put spices in there. My preference and is... brushing that on ducks, yeah. birds, quail. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I can't remember which book I have. Oh, that's in, it's in my, uh, in a field. Uh, there's a glaze and it's 50-50 honey and vinegar with a little bit of anise seed and um and garlic and it's it's a wonderful glaze that sounds so good yeah it works really well especially with sherry vinegar for some reason um and that was it and then we served the ducks and you know for you know it was a little like oh how are these going to be and then I, I cheated and tore a little piece off and i was like i kind of nailed that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, it was good it so was good. good you nail everything man i've never oh, had you make anything no, that wasn't good no i don't i well that's that's super kind of you but i don't um you know there's there's failures out there but i think that just i, I like to try to make spoonies taste good i like to give them a chance you know if you gotta kill them you know let's just let's just treat them with with an ideal that they're going to be great. 
you know, no. and no. And then it just comes down to tricks. And then when we draw out the cooking process over 40 minutes, I hope people aren't intimidated, but it's really not that hard. If you, oh, no. if you distill this down. Uh, Here, let, me, let me do a quick version. There you go. Okay, pluck your ducks, cut them in half, uh, put some seasoning on them, let them sit a few hours, get a big pot of lard, pork lard, Stick the ducks in there, put it in your oven for a few hours at 275, four hours at 275, pull them out, smoke them for a while, throw a glaze on. How's that? I love it. That's perfect. So you, you can listen it. to that, or you can listen to everything else we just talked about. Yeah, just yeah. scroll back and listen to my voice <laughs> over and over. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, they turned out great, and it would, it would apply to other ducks. Um, you can do the same process. We we use this confit and grill process extensively at the restaurant. We do chicken hearts that way. I mean, I've I've stole that from you. So I mean, just to look at I stole at the, that for duck hearts. Right. The how useful it is. Like the two main things that we do in that manner at the restaurant would be chicken hearts and beef ribs. So like a, a three or four pound full cut beef rib uh, that is cured and then slowly cooked in this case in beef fat until it's tender and then grilled at the end and that's our way of achieving tenderness and then when the order comes in we can cook the beef rib over the grill and it can get that you're 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 getting it tender first and then you're coming back later and getting the smoke the char and the texture now that's my favorite venison rib preparation but i haven't done it in the lard it would be quite good you do it in water i do it in water sure part of the thing is this and i'd be curious to get your take on this part of what i'm trying to do when i do it in water is i'm trying if it's a real fatty deer that's great a lot more meat Uh i'm trying to get all that deer fat yeah out of the meat right so i slow cook it right and then when you set it, when you get it up to set it and let it cool, all that fat—it's tallow, right? Wax. Which just doesn't taste that. It's it's super waxy, unpleasant. So I'm trying to get all that waxy fat out of there, right? And it floats up to the surface of water. A thing I might be afraid of, or maybe it wouldn't matter, is if I took my little deer ribs and like, imagine you got like just listeners, like imagine you got a deer standing there, and you got all of its ribs. In the end, I like cut the ribs off. I take a sawzall and run them into slip, strip, cut them into strips, uh, so that I got chunks of three-inch rib. So I'm going against the grain of the ribs with my sawzall, and I'm just cutting the rib slab into three strips. And then I take a few bones, cut it, a few bones, cut it. And I got like if you went to a restaurant and ordered pork ribs, two or three ribs per piece. The ribs are not three, maybe the ribs are four or five inches tall. Uh, I cook them till tender in water. Are you seasoning the water? No. I season it after I'm done. I would. because, And I, I want all that deer fat to liquefy and go away. Right. Then I do a dry rub. Then I grill them. But here's my question to you. Let's say I'd cooked them down. I tenderized them in pork lard. Uh. It would probably uh, diffuse, carry away the deer fat waxiness. My feeling is yes, it probably would. It would probably serve the same exact purpose as the water. 
but it would incorporate but it could in- incorporate some less waxy fat back in that's this but is your a other hypothetical fat would here. then have wax your other Any, fat would have waxy fat integrated that. into it is my theory that is also true but probably such trace amounts that it doesn't matter uh, i mean to full full disclosure i also cook the venison ribs like this in water but what i like to do is highly season the water so that i'm getting because my what i've always found is that uh, when you when you cook them, you've got you've got the outside seasoned only, and the inside tends to be, run a little bland. So I will season it with, you know, bay leaves and garlic and onion, and I'll, there'll be some salt in the water. Or if you do have time before they go into the water, season them at that point, like so, dry brine them, <laughs> yep. and then dry go into them. the water, and so that 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 they're they're fully seasoned. And then when they come out, you don't have just like that outer layer. That's got the nice seasoning on it, but they're seasoned yeah, yeah. throughout. And then you grill them. Correct. Oh, it's so good. And that's and that's my fifty-fifty uh, honey vinegar glaze. That's we 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 do this very often. Just make venison ribs like that, exactly like you're saying. You know, par cook, uh, and then baste on the grill with that vinegar and honey mix. Just Let me flip, tell you something flip, that's real flip, good. Flip, you probably already know about is uh, what I like to baste them with on my grill. 50% cider vinegar, 50% mustard. Oh, mustard. Yep. And I slop them in that. My kids, it's so weird. I mean, they love it. Yeah. That, they like to have the little dipping bowls of it too. Oh. Cider vinegar and mustard brushed on the ribs. Nice. You can brush them barbecue sauce, but then it tastes like every damn thing in barbecue sauce. Right. We, we, eat, we eat no shortage of barbecue sauce in my house. <laughs> It's just like such a like, oh, the hell are we going to do with these leftovers? Well, I'm going to mash them up and put barbecue sauce and put it on sandwiches. Right. Uh, we made, for Thanksgiving this year, we made a big Italian mixed boil. Uh-huh. Bolito end, misto. Yeah, bolito misto. And in the end, I we just got so sick of the leftovers. In the end, I just wound up all in barbecue sauce on sandwiches. <laughs> all the shanks and everything, you know? Yeah. yeah. What went into it? What did I do? The bleedo, bleedo misto. Yeah, I did. Uh, a friend of mine that raises cattle gave me some beef tongue. Nice. My kid's buddy, uh, his family raises chickens, so I had a chicken, and then I realized I needed another chicken, so then I had to buy a chicken. I had uh, a moose brisket. This is like classic composition right here, brisket. I had a chicken. piglet, a wild piglet shoulder from Hawaii. So uh-huh. the whole pig shoulder. I had a couple antelope shoulders that I corned where I just sawzalled a whole antelope leg into three pieces and corned it. I had pronghorn shanks that were just braised. What else did I put in there? And then like rutabagas, turnips, white beets taters can is it a, can we talk about this yeah like for a minute you don't like it no i oh. i i really i really enjoy this topic okay and there's a there's a couple to, and I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna ask you questions now um and going back to the well let, let's start here um poached or well it's 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 a mixed boil i mean that's what it translates it's to. a mixed boil but it's not boiled 
It's poached. Well, yes. You're not. You're not. I, I cooking never it once in, a rolling in the process boil. had a rip and boil. Correct. Now, if I had the, if I had really devoted my brain to it and had the, a large enough vessel and really sat and looked at everything and thought it out, I could have been like, okay, I'm putting. We're going to eat at six. I'm putting that in at nine a.m. I'm putting that in at 10 a.m. I'm putting that in at 5 p.m. Right. But I didn't do it that way because I was too lazy to think about it all. Because I I was going to get there in a second. I had a few things going. Right. I had a few things going that all got combined in the end. Okay. Okay. Because the the staging was going to be my second question. My first being more, not really a question, but more of an observation is that like poached or meats that are slow cooked in water not widely accepted here like um we we really crave i think in in this country and many other countries uh the texture of a sear from a grill or or being fried or put under a broiler yeah they weren't getting that in my house this year no but uh i love things like that like a poached chicken or a poached shank or a tongue or something like that i think there's a lot of value to it and how how do we go about normalizing that as a preparation? Because it's really cool. I think it's you really cool. You need to feed it to your kids when they're young. Yeah. And if everybody did that in a generation or two, the problem would be over. But what if you're an, an adult and you're like, boiled meat, who eats that? Oh, Nobody. I don't even Ugh. care. It's like, I don't care. I used, to, I used to years ago care about all this stuff, you know? I don't care what people. I just don't care. I don't want to hear about it anymore. No, but what if we're trying <laughs> to, to hear open about people's minds? Yeah, we're trying to we're trying to convince people to eat mixed boils. Yeah, I just kind of like you know. I, I just don't. I don't need to hear about what you don't want to eat. I just like don't don't come over. <laughs> <laughs> so if you were so next question. Okay, let me hit with let me hit with a quote from a friend of mine. Okay. So my wife, for meeting new people, my wife will often. Uh, if their kids are coming over, my wife will often be like, just so you know, we have guns in the house. They're locked up, but we have guns in the house. You know? Uh, she just feels this is a courtesy because there's some, you know, whatever. She doesn't apologize about it. She's just letting them know. I think she's been asked enough, maybe. But uh, a friend of mine is like, uh, if, if they don't like it, don't come to my house. And I just a little bit like what I, what I can't even, I just can't, all the people that don't want to eat all the stuff, I just, I can't argue with them anymore. I, I'm, I'm right there. But I do think that educate, educating and opening some minds, but there's still time. People listen. They listen to what you have to say. They okay. listen. They're interested in the fact that you had the mixed boil for Thanksgiving. Yeah, I've talked about I, three times. I, I mean, <laughs> I think it's. I think that's amazing. I love that. My wife was a little miffed, but in the end, she conceded that it was better than what you normally eat at Thanksgiving. If you were to, can I get onto my technical question? Oh yeah, please. If you were to stage it, did you cook it in the same broth? In the end, no. I had a few things going on. Couple I don't, different I don't, pots. Go of ahead things. and ask your questions, unless you want me to elaborate. Let's say, hypothetically, you've got a big pot where you're going to cook everything. How would you have, how would you have staged it? In what order would you have, have I would done? have woke up in the morning, 
and I would have gotten my uncured raw ass shanks in there. Um, let's say I'm eating. Let's say I'm, we're going to eat at six. I would have, uh, I would have gotten my pot and cause I wouldn't want to sit there keeping an eye on it. I would have just put it in my oven at a certain temp and put my shanks in there. Mm-hmm. Then I would have gone my corned meats. Oh, you know what else I put in there? Forgot about this. I made a bunch of venison garlic sausages and right. threw a dozen of them in there. The, I'm sorry, the sausages are going in this early? No, 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 no. Oh. I forgot in my big, what all was in there, that was in there. They went in late. I would have done my raw-ass uncured shanks. Okay. Then later I would have put my corn in. My corn and I corned my moose brisket, and I corned some of the uh, bone-in venison pieces. I would have waited a while. My tongue was already—you know—it's not a raw tongue. My tongue had already been smoked. Oh, okay. So it's just vac sealed. I made it. I made three, saved one for Thanksgiving in a vac bag. So it's like recipe ready. It just needs to be warmed up. Like you could—it's just ready to eat as soon as I thought it out. So I would have waited, and then at f- probably like uh, 4 o'clock maybe, I would have put my tongue in there. 5 o'clock, I would have got my harder to like big beets, big white beets, uh-huh. turnips and radishes. I would have got them in there to make sure that they were ready. Radishes? No, I'm sorry. Rutabagas. Rutabagas. Got it. At... 5.30, I would have done my chicken and my sausages. Okay. And by now, the broth is just it's phenomenal. It's, it's phenomenal. So I good. say, I, you know what? When I was all done the next day, because I strained it off, when I was all done the next day, I jarred it all in yeah. my pressure canner. So now I got that shit on my shelf in canning jars. Nice. So the meats are coming out. They're getting sliced? Yeah, a little bit. Part of the appeal is it's some caveman-looking business. Yeah. I bought two giant platters on Amazon with pumpkins and stuff on them. Because, like, <laughs> none turkeys and pumpkins and shit yeah, out. Yeah. Because we're not having any of that stuff. And so I was like, it was a little throw to people that were all miffed. A little jab. Certain unnamed family members. Yeah. They were like, where's the turkey stuffing? It's right there on the cornucopia. So it's uh, look, you'll notice uh, it's all portrayed there on the edge of yeah. the, my giant platters. That yeah. I don't know where you know where I'm going to put them until next Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> and I made two mountains, mountains yeah. of boiled assorted meats and root vegetables. Okay. And then- oh, and a lot of carrot, uncut carrots. Oh, just whole carrots. Whole ass, Deal with the it. biggest, nastiest carrots you can find. Whole ass carrots. Got it. And then what? what is, uh, did you do condiments? Ble- or uh, mustarda, which I just bought. So you went like full on traditional with oh, this. Oh yeah, well I'm, I'm 23% Italian. There you go. 2% North African. And then a whole bunch of uh, Western Europe. Okay. I was digging into my 23% Italian. There you go. I bought mustarda, um, and then we made two, a red salsa and a green salsa. Like a raw green herb sauce? Yeah. All right. Yeah. 
This is phenomenal. Salt? And I had a couple little salt tubs laid out. Uh, any special salt or just some kosher? Flaked sea salt. Flaky sea salt. Then, now if you really want to know, then I made a horseradish sauce. Uh, creamy? Yeah. You nailed this. Yeah. I got, a horse, I got my own horseradish patch, too, I'll point out. Oh. So, which is frozen and locked under dirt, but I had cured, you know, I had made some with vinegar and all that. And that was for the corned meats. Phenomenal. Yeah. That answer all your questions? It did. It did. I'm really glad we took a turn down mm-hmm. that route. This, I, is a, this is a food episode. Okay. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Anything else you need to know? No. No. I mean, we can we can move on. But I, I like I said, I, I think that this is this is a topic that really needs normalizing. Uh, we had a guest on. Talk about boiled meat. We had a guest on Seth Kantner. He was raised um, outside of Kotzebue. He was brought up in a sod igloo, living off the land, dirt floor, sod igloo, sled dogs, feeding them off caribou. He's an author. He wrote Shopping for Porcupine. He wrote Ordinary Wolves. He wrote A Thousand Trails Home about caribou reading his book about caribou like they eat a lot of um a lot of boiled like that style of cooking which is like very influenced by anupiat culture and stuff but they eat a lot of just like a moose knees you butcher your moose you, you get the big chunks off the big muscle groups off and then they, then they like take the knee joint and they just boil it and they eat all that tendon, gelatinous stuff. Marrow. Yeah. A lot of boiled meat. You'd have people over, and it would just be like the, like the pelvis, okay? So you butcher a caribou. You take that whole pelvis, whatever, just any chunks of anything that, like, you'd normally be like, okay, it's clean. Like, let's say you're butchering an elk out in the mountains. All the shit that's laying there when you walk away with your backpack full of meat, boneless meat or quarters or whatever, everything that's laying there, they would saw up and boil mm-hmm. and serve that. And you go in there, go to the pot, and you grab out a moose knee, and you sit down and pick it. Yeah. Everything, the down, bones, to the, yep. everything down to the bone. Makes sense. And reading that, it's like, man, you know, it's like salt and boiled joints. Yeah. So they they have it very much so of like a, an appreciation for just that boiled meat. Yeah, I think many cultures do. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, just soups and you know, pho. Yep. You know, or you know, and you know, France has its own version of of that. I mean, Italy famously so, but I I, I particularly enjoy it, especially when you you play with all the condiments and you, it's like a choose your own adventure over there and you've got these like sharp bright condiments that are going with this like kind of like stodgy yeah almost unidimensional preparation it's delicious but still and then you get the, the broth the, the sauces really make it right the right. mustarda fruit it's fun yeah and that jelly inside the mustarda fruit, yeah all that stuff really makes it what yeah. is mustarda he could probably explain it mustard fruit but there's no mustard in it 
There should be mustard seeds in it. Okay, mu- yeah, sorry. Yep. Yeah, so, I mean, mustard being like one of the most preservative of the spices. I mean, it, it lasts almost indefinitely. And so mustarda uh, is an Italian like sweet condiment that's also got a bit of spice to it. So okay. picture it be, a maraschino cherry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause it'll have some of those in it, but you've made picture that you've made maraschino cherries out of kiwis, cherries, oranges, yeah. pear slices. Hmm. That sounds great. And then it's packed in a, how do you even describe what it's packed in? It's a, it's a, a jelly. Okay. Or a syrup. It's expensive uh-huh. as shit. Yeah. And it can be made with any fruit. It's kind of, it's, uh, I would say it's in the chutney family. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And I, I don't work, I got to point out, man, I got no, I don't work at Amazon. Um, <laughs> I bought mine off Amazon because you get it from Italian. I mean, if, if like, you know, we live in Montana, it's hard to find some stuff. Sure. If you were in New York, you just go down and probably go to like 18 stores within right. five blocks and yeah. buy a mustard of fruit. <laughs> yeah. But, I, I wouldn't know where to begin. I just yeah. order it, and it comes from, it's like all made in Italy, yeah. and right. I just buy the jars on Amazon. Yeah. I mean, There's I mean, probably a better way to do it, but that's just how I do it. You could make it. It'd be a fun, it would be a project akin to making jam or jelly, okay. anything like that, or or a chutney where you could can it, Yep. Um, and you could use whatever fruit it is. I mean, you could make a choke cherry mustarda or something like that, or an apple mustarda. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. They're being dumbasses, but my kids do not like it. They do not like it. Huh. They like the look of it. Sure. You know, like White Claw? A kid can look at a can of White Claw across the room, and they are in. Huh. Everything about it. The color of the can, the size of the can. The little design. Yeah. It's like they see that, and they think, I would like that beverage. From 100 yards away, they know they're going to, they, they, they like everything about the presentation. You bring a jar, and we start in the home, and they're fired up. Like what could you know? Don't they like sweet? What could things? be more exciting than what's in that jar? And then they taste it, and they're just out. <laughs> it's like they're like someone ruined it. It's too spicy. <laughs> but it's a great wild game accompaniment across sure. the board, man. Yeah. On duck. Yeah. It's phenomenal on duck. Does yeah. it have a kind of vinegar in it as well? Is there a sour element, or is there a fruit that's sour that's in it? Typically, like like a tang is it? Is there always no, a tang, or it's not quite in it's that gotta direction? It's got to come from the fruit, and then a copious amount of mustard. Okay. M O S T A R D A. Yeah. It'll be like fruta. <clears throat> it's in Italian. Yeah. It'll be fruta mustarda. I'll have to try it one day. Yeah. When you're searching up beef fat, you search <laughs> up a jar of that. And get yourself a jar heading over. Yeah. Prepare to pay for it. Right. I mean, I think chutneys too are, you know, again, a universal condiment. And like, uh, there's a, I put a chutney recipe in the hog book and I feel like you can put anything in there from an apple to a zucchini and it's going to come out great. It's just, it's, it's a method, okay. uh, which is always appealing to me. It's just to like put out methods rather than strict recipes. Yeah. And so, but what, at the end of the day, what it is, it's that it's, it's sweet and it's sour and like there's that those two flavors go so far with like enlivening game because it's just that richness it's the the old eq on the radio where you've got too much bass and you need to bring in a little bit of treble and that's exactly what what those flavors are with that like acidic punch and mustard seed ginger things like that i want to close with uh i want you to i'll do mine first i get to do three but you only you only get to do one 
your best like your best message like if you could have a, a message to wild game cooks broadcast into outer space okay so that all life would hear it what would it be i go first and i only got one no i'm gonna go first i get three okay <laughs> one is go eat at jesse's restaurant oh two is get if you like to hunt wild pigs get jesse's hog book what's it called the hog book yeah I knew it was something real simple. I bet more people come to me about that book. People, people that are exposed to pigs, and they got all the stupid shit. Like you can't eat this guy. Yeah, you can't eat the boars. You can't. You can't eat the sows. Whatever the hell you hear it all. Uh, it's phenomenal a, book. It's available on the meat eater store. It's a phenomenal book. Thank you. I people come it. to me all the time about how blown away they are about that book. We won the James Beard Award since I saw you last. Oh, I didn't know that. That the book Hulk, won the, the James Beard Award. Did it really? Yes, sir. You're shitting me. No. For the single subject category. The hog book is the winner. No way. I think that's a win for, I'm not trying to be, I don't know. I don't know what the word would be. But when the, just getting that recognition for a book about hunting and specifically about pigs that's hyper graphic there's uh you know we self-published it so we could put whatever pictures we wanted in there there's a lot of i mean there's guts there's blood there's there's death there's dead piglets all that stuff i think that uh the recognition from the culinary community about a book like that was really significant to me and i'm not trying to be no, to turn great, this man. into something like it's a win for us all but it's a win for us all i felt like that was it was very cool to to see that to, I, didn't, I didn't hear i didn't know awesome. that yeah. yeah son of a bitch yeah. huh. it was pretty cool i got to go to chicago too and hear my name <laughs> it was cool that's great man. my daughter said that my nose was sweating <laughs> <laughs> Um, so here's my final tip. So let's go to your restaurant, get your hog book. Here's my final tip. Uh, I've said this before. You're either cooking it too long or you're not cooking it long enough. Damn, you nailed it. You nailed it. You nailed it. Uh, I'll, I'll, mine, mine is don't believe what they say. (laughs) (laughs) Don't believe what they say. Cause when they are telling you, they get to talking that a gaff top catfish is not edible or that an dad is not edible or you can't eat a pig over, pick your weight, 90, 100, 120, 140, whatever it is. Can't eat them in, from February to August or whatever. Don't believe them. Don't believe them. You can't eat a shoveler. You can't, you know, boiled meat's not good. Just don't believe them. That's, that's, uh, that's my advice. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Lying sons of bitches. They are. <laughs> All of them. <laughs> you know what? And they've never tried it. They just heard it. It's just that generational misinformation. Uh, I think we, we gotta remember to call the Kareem, we gotta remember to call the episode Don't Believe Them. Okay. <laughs> Done. 
I love it. We come up with a lot of good titles and we kind of forget them. <laughs> well, it's best to just record that. <laughs> you know, just, yeah, we workshop it. No, just put it right we, in we there. We do record it and then yeah. we name it something different. Right? Uh, I was like, we ought to call this episode. And then we like, think, then it gets a different name. And the listeners this are really confused. This one, by yeah. God, is going to be Don't Believe Them. Yep, and you can check it. my work by going and looking what it's called. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Perfect. Jesse Griffiths. Yeah, thank you. Die Due in Austin, Texas. Yes, sir. D-A-I-D-U-E. Yeah, he should have named it something different. It's should've. too late now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's way too late. <laughs> that ship sailed. Yeah. My daughter, I'm not even going to tell you. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, when she was reading it. Yeah. I was like, it's Die Due. Die Due. Yeah, that's, a, that's an Italian coming out. Yeah, you... You genetically knew how to pronounce it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater.